train of godly women such as Ruth and such as Esther as we are about to see. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the controversies that is broiling in our day, and not only in our day, has to do with the role of men and women, right? And uh, churches are divided over that, and, and there are a lot of winds blowing in terms of the role of women in the church. I want to begin by saying there is a lot of equality between men and women presented to us in the Bible. Men and women are equally made in the image of God. Neither man nor woman has more of an edge on the Imago Dei, both men and women are equally sinful and in need of salvation. And when they come to be in Christ, both men and women are equally blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. There is all that equality between men and women. Now, there are role distinctions. It's very clear to an honest reader of the Bible that men are called to be leaders in the home and leaders in the church. Most, but not all, of the prophets of God who brought the word of God in the Old Testament were men. When Jesus chose 12 to be with him and to send them out to preach, to be the foundation of the New Covenant community and to write the Bible, the New Testament, they, he chose 12 men. And we know that men alone are called to be overseers, elders, and shepherds in the church. But the Bible also has given us some wonderful examples of women who are godly and greatly used of God in the history of redemption. We have already seen, albeit briefly, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Leah. We saw the role that Rahab played in preserving the spies who went into the promised land. And then we saw Naomi and Ruth, heroic women who contributed to the propagation of the godly line, Ruth being an ancestor of King David. And we must remember that ultimately, that the ultimate deliverer is ultimately going to be of the seed of a woman. Well, I say that because we're coming this morning to the book of Esther. And today we come to another woman of God who proves to be a, a hero or a heroine and plays a crucial role in the preservation of the covenant people of God. So I ask you to turn your Bibles to Esther, a book by her name, and it follows Ezra and Nehemiah, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, Ezra and Nehemiah, and then we come to Esther. Let me just locate us historically, and I don't want to confuse you too much with dates, but We've seen that the first wave of refugees coming back to Jerusalem were under King Cyrus. That was in 538 BC. Ezra and Nehemiah didn't come until 80 or 90 years later under the reign of King Artaxerxes I in 458 and 445 BC. Where we are now is right in between Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes. We're dealing here at the time of the Persian Empire with a king, Ahasuerus, or Xerxes I, who was the father of Artaxerxes. So, simply put, we're between the first return to Jerusalem and the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, and we're not dealing with Jerusalem. We are here in the Persian Empire. That's where we're located, in the capital of the Persian Empire, Susa. A little bit about es Esther's name. Her name, Esther, is her Persian name. It comes from the, the Persian word stara, 
the Greek aster and English star. So Esther means star. And it is somehow linked to the great Babylonian goddess Ishtar, god of, goddess of love, beauty, fertility, and justice. Her Hebrew name, as many of you know, is Hadassah, which means myrtle for the, the flower or the, the tree. I'm going to follow the same pattern that I follow with Ezra and Nehemiah. We're going to look at the plot line of Esther, the place it has in God's big picture, and then some practical lessons. Now, I'm not going to do that with Job, and I'm not going to do that with the book of Psalms. But these are short stories, and so it's not hard to follow the plot line. So let's plunge in to the story of Esther, as many of you know it. The Persian Empire was vast, from India in the east all the way to Ethiopia in Africa. And the story of Esther begins by bringing us into the banquet hall of a pagan king, King Ahasuerus or Xerxes I. And this king is given, giving a seven-day banquet. The posh elegance is described. There's fine white and violet linen, marble columns, drinks served in golden vessels, and the royal wine is flowing plentifully. On the seventh day of that banquet, the king, King Xerxes I, merry with wine, in other words, he was drunk, commanded the eunuchs to bring his wife, Vashti, who was beautiful, and to bring her so that she might display her beauty. Well, Vashti refuses to come, and that very much angers the king. And the king takes counsel with his wise men, what should we do with Vashti since she has refused this command of the king? And they advise that Vashti be dumped, that she be deposed as queen. And the reason for that is, it presents a bad look to the empire. If women in the empire see that Vashti has defied her husband, the other women will be inclined to defy their husbands and dishonor them and their authority. And so um, the king goes along with that, and letters are sent to all the provinces telling all the men to be masters in their own houses. And after the king's anger subsides, it is suggested to him that there be a replacement for Vashti, that beautiful young virgins be uh, present themselves to the capital there, Susa, in order for a choice to be made of a replacement for deposed queen Vashti. The king likes the idea, and it is carried out. At this point, we're introduced to a, a man by the name of Mordecai. He's a Jew. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. He had been taken into exile from Jerusalem under the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. And he happens to be bringing up his uncle's daughter, Hadassah, Persian name Esther. Now, that would make her his cousin. But you know how it is. She was probably young enough to be a daughter. You know how that is sometimes, you know, with a cousin. It may be a cousin, but it may be old enough to be a mother or father or a daughter. And so he's bringing up his younger, much younger, presumably, cousin Esther. Well, it just so happened that one of the young ladies taken to Susa to be considered as a replacement for Queen Vashti was Esther. And it just so happened that Esther seemed to find greater favor in the eyes of the king than the other women. And it also just so happened that Mordecai instructs Esther not to make known her Jewish heritage at that time. Well, during the time that Esther was part of the king's harem, during a 12-month uh, uh, trial period to choose a new queen, 
Mordecai just so happened to make it his practice to walk back and forth in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was faring. She was in there with the other women under the care of the eunuchs, and, and he cared about his adopted daughter, and so he would go every day and, and, and check out how she's doing. Well, it just so happens that Esther wins the competition, and she is crowned as queen. It is repeated several times that she had not made known to the king her heritage. She did not let on that she was Jewish. And she did this in obedience to Mordecai. And then there's this little statement that's significant. For Esther did what Mordecai told her as she had done when under his care. A clear commendation of the character of this young woman that she was submissive to God-ordained authority. And then it just so happened that as Mordecai was coming day after day to check in on Esther, he was sitting at the king's gate, and he happened to overhear that there was a plot by two disgruntled officials to harm the king, probably to kill the king. And so he hears that plot of that plot. He reports it to Esther. Esther reports it to the king who harm the king, are arrested, and they are hanged. And then it is recorded in the Chronicles that this had happened. Now, coinciding with Mordecai's discovery of this plot and the recording of it, our attention is then turned in chapter 3 to King Ahasuerus. And he's seen to be promoting a certain man by the name of Haman to be second in command in the empire, giving him authority over all the provinces commanding all the king's servants to bow down to him. Here is where the action rises. Mordecai, as a faithful Jew, refuses to bow down to Haman and to offer him the worship that he is supposed to have and, and very much desires. Well, when Mordecai refuses to bow down to Haman, this incenses Haman. And when he finds out that Haman is uh, that Mordecai is a Jew, he purposes to destroy all the Jewish people in a massive genocide. The Persians, like all Near Eastern people, were very superstitious, and it appears that Haman hired a magician or astrologer, the commentators tell us, to cast Lot, poor, P-U-R, to see what days would be the best days to execute this genocide and exterminate the Jews. And so he casts lots to determine when the best day would be. Haman then convinces King Ahasuerus that the Jews were a threat to his kingdom. He presents it to King Ahasuerus. He says, look, these Jews follow different laws. They're not subservient to the king's laws. They're a threat to your rule. And really, it is in your best interest, king, to get rid of these Jews, which was Haman's desire because of his being inflamed over Mordecai's refusal to bow down to him. So Haman suggests that the Jews in the entire empire be destroyed. He even offers to contribute 10,000 talents of silver to the king's treasury to make it happen. Well, King Ahasuerus gives Haman authority to carry out this genocide. He gives him his signet ring by which he is able to seal letters, and those letters are sent to all of the provinces ordering that Jews, young and old, women and children, be annihilated. And Haman is here named or called the enemy of the Jews. Well, when Mordecai learns of this plan to exterminate his people, 
typical of, of Jewish mourning. He tears his clothes. He puts sackcloth on. He puts ashes on his head. He goes into the midst of the city of Susa and wails loudly and bitterly. In every province, the Jews mourn, fast, wail, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes when they hear that their, their race is to be exterminated. Esther hears the news in the palace, and she is in anguish, but she's not sure what's happening, and so she sends a messenger to, uh, to Mordecai to find out more information. Mordecai sends a copy of the edict back to her through that messenger, and Esther also orders, um, oh, he also orders Esther. Okay, our Jewish people are going to be exterminated. Esther, you're a Jew. You need to implore the king on behalf of your people, our people. Now, for anyone to go into the presence of such a king was life-threatening. If the king did not extend the golden scepter to you and give you a hearing, it was death, right? And so Esther knew that this was life-threatening for her to go into the king and make requests on behalf of her people. So she asks uh, Mordecai to assemble the Jews in Susa and have them fast for three days. And she and her maidens will do the same because she's purposing to go into the king to make requests of him on behalf of her people. And she makes that famous statement, if I perish, I perish. We're now building toward the climax. Esther is shown favor by the king. He extends the golden scepter to her. In fact, he is so favorable, he says, whatever you want, Esther, I'll give you up to half my kingdom. Esther, at this point, proceeds with great wisdom and tact. You following the story so far? Her people are, are slated to be exterminated. She's a Jew. She's in the palace. She's the queen. Now she's going to ask the king, spare her people. She's very wise and tactful. She doesn't just blurt it out, but she says, King, can we have a banquet? And I'd like to invite you and Haman to the banquet. And so they both attend. And at that banquet, the king reiterates to Esther, by the way, Esther, remember, I've promised you anything you want, up to half my kingdom. And she says, I, I want to make known my request, but why don't we plan a banquet for tomorrow as well, just for you and Haman to attend? It is interjected here that Haman was exhilarated with the honor of being shown to him, that only he and the king were invited to this banquet. But when he saw Mordecai, who refused to stand up and tremble before him, it says he's filled with anger. And he goes home. He gathers his friends and his wife. And to offset the, the anger in his heart, he, he rehearses before his wife and his friends the glory of his riches, the number of his sons, and the honor the king has shown him in inviting only him to the banquet with Esther. But it adds that all of that did not satisfy him because Mordecai would not bow down to him. We're getting the picture of Haman as a very proud narcissist. No other word to describe it but narcissist. Haman's wife has a good idea. Why don't you just build a gallows, 50 cubits, 75 feet high, and hang Mordecai on the gallows. So she's going along with him, trying to help him out. This guy's a thorn in your flesh. He won't bow down to you. He won't feed your ego. Just build a gallows and hang him. 
What a woman. And next week, God willing, we're going to study Job, and we're going to see that Job's wife was, was not a great one. When Job was suffering as he was, what was her counsel? Curse God and die. Well, this wife, Zeresh, kind of belongs in the same hall of shame with Job's wife. At this juncture, it just so happens that the king couldn't sleep one night, and to help him fall asleep, he asks his servants to bring him the book of the records, the chronicles, to be read to him. They must be very boring. So he wanted something. When you can't sleep, you want something very boring to listen to or to read to put you to sleep. So bring the records. Yeah, I need to get sleep. Bring some records. I want to hear the records of the events that have happened in recent history. And as they do that, the account is recalled where there was a plot against him and a certain man by the name of Mordecai uncovered the plot and the king's life was spared. And so the king asked, what has been done for this man, Mordecai? The answer, nothing has been done for him. At that moment, Haman just happens to be in the courtyard. Now, you got to follow this because here we're getting to the climax. The king is learning that this guy Mordecai had been instrumental in saving his life. He uncovered the plot against the king's life. But Mordecai had never been rewarded for that, and so he's told that. At that point, the king is determined that who's ever in the courtyard at that time, I'm going to ask his counsel as to how to honor Mordecai. Chapter 6, verse 6. So Haman came in. Haman just happened to be the one in the courtyard at that time. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, what is to be done for the man whom the king desires to honor? And Haman said to himself, whom would the king desire to honor more than me? Now, Haman had come to ask the king's permission to hang Mordecai. And now the king is wanting to honor Mordecai. So he says, what should be done for this man unnamed that the king desires to honor? And in his narcissism, Haman thinks, well, who could he be talking about but me? And so Haman gives an answer. Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king desires to honor, let him bring a royal robe which the king has worn and the horse on which the king has ridden and on whose head a royal crown has been placed. And let the robe and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble princes and let them array the man whom the king desires to honor and lead him on horseback through the city square and proclaim before him, thus it shall be done to the man whom the king desires to honor. And the whole time he thinks he's setting the stage for himself to be honored. Well, here's the kicker in verse 10. Then the king said to Haman, take quickly the robes and the horse as you have said and do so for Mordecai, the Jew, who is sitting at the king's gate. Do not fall short in anything of all that you have said. Wow. What a mortifying, humbling, crushing blow this is to this evil man. He does as the king commands, and then he hurries home, mourning with his head covered, and at this point, let me just mention what this illustrates. I'll draw it out more fully at the end. Pride goes before stumbling and a haughty spirit before a fall. Also illustrates that he who exalts himself will be humbled, as Jesus said. And it also illustrates 
that punishment often suits the sin. The man who wanted all this honor for himself ends up having to give it to the man who refused to give him the honor he craved. Proverbs 26, 27 says, He who digs a pit will himself fall into it, and he who rolls a stone, it will come back on him. But friends, it also illustrates the way that the devil operates and the way that devilish people operate. In verse 13, Haman tells his wife and his friends about the horrific, from his perspective, turn of events. That he had to honor Mordecai, the Jew he hated for not honoring him. Listen to their response. Then Haman recounted to Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends, everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and and Zeresh, his wife, said to him, if Mordecai before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish origin, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. I want you to see something here. It shows us the way the devil operates. When he had come, boasting in the glory of his riches, the number of sons, and the honor the king was showing him, what were they doing, his wife and his friends? They were doing nothing but feed his ego, trying to you solve his problem. Mordecai's a problem. Build a gallows and, and hang him on it. But now, after the tables have been turned and they come, what do they do? Well, looks like you're dead in the water, Haman. You know, looks like handwriting's on the wall. You're finished. And I want to point out that that's the way the devil operates with you and with me. On the one hand, the devil will entice you to sin, encourage you to sin, invite you to sin, make sin very attractive and alluring. He will pull you into sin. But as soon as you give in to temptation and sin, he and his lackeys will stand back and mock you and condemn you. Isn't that devilish? Isn't that the way the devil works? He lures us into sin, makes it so attractive, then he turns around and condemns us for committing it. And this was very devilish on the part of his wife and his wise men who were not wise. Well, the narrative quickly moves quickly from here. The king's eunuchs uh, bring Haman to that banquet that Esther had scheduled. And there, Esther finally comes forth with her request, asking that, revealing now that she's a Jew, and asking that her life and the life of her people be spared because they have been sold for destruction. When the king asks, who has presumed to do this? Esther says, quote, a foe and an enemy is this wicked Haman. At that point, Haman becomes terrified before the king and the queen. The king is so angry, he has to leave the room to compose himself. When he comes back, he finds that, that uh, Haman is, is uh, falling on the couch where Esther is begging pathetically for his life. And when the king comes back, it looks like he's, he's assaulting the king and so King Ahasuerus has Haman hung on the very gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Talk about falling into the pit that you have dug for others. Well, Mordecai and Esther are given the house of Haman. Esther implores the king to revoke the letters calling for the destruction of the Jews. But the laws of the Medes and Persians could not be revoked. The king could not revoke the command to annihilate the Jews. But what he does do is he gives permission for the Jews to defend themselves and fight against 
those who would try to kill them. Quote, to assemble and to defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate the entire army of any people or province which might attack them, including children and women, and to plunder their spoil. Here is a complete reversal. The people were first authorized to exterminate the Jews. Now the Jews are given authority by the king to resist and to defend themselves and to destroy their enemies. Mordecai is honored by being adorned with royal robes. A large crown of gold is put on his head. A garment of fine linen and purple is wrapped around him. The city of Susa shouts and rejoices. The Jews have light, gladness, joy, and honor. Many people actually become Jews at that point. And it just so happened that, quote, the dread of the Jews had fallen on them. As a result, instead of the enemies of the Jews gaining mastery over them, the Jews gained mastery over their enemies, those who hated them. It just so happened, as it says, that no one could stand before them, for the dread of them, the Jews, had fallen on all the peoples. Mordecai was great in the king's house. His fame spread. He became greater and greater. The Jews killed 500 people in Susa, 500 men in the citadel alone. He, they killed the 10 sons of Haman and hung them on the gallows. They killed another 300 men in Susa. All told, the Jews killed 75,000, quote, of those who hated them. But it's noted more than once that even though they were given the privilege of plundering the people who tried to destroy them, they did not do that. They didn't plunder anything. And that seems to indicate that the Jews were not motivated by vengeance or greed, but simply self-defense. The upshot of the whole scenario, the whole story, is that Mordecai then institutes a feast, the Feast of Purim. On the 14th and 15th day of the month Adar, they were to celebrate with feasting, rejoicing, and sending food to one another and gifts to the poor, because those were the two days after the Jews had rid themselves of their enemies, when God turned, quote, their sorrow into gladness, their mourning into good day, Purim comes from the word poor, lot. Remember, Haman had cast lots to try to, superstitiously, to try to figure out what's the best days for me to arrange for the extermination of the Jews. Well, the Jews turned that into a, a national feast day, Purim. And the commentators say it's almost like it's sarcastic. He cast the lot to destroy us. How'd that work for you, Haman? And so Purim becomes a Jewish feast from then on. The book of Esther closes with a tribute to Mordecai, saying how the account of his greatness is written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia, how he was second only to the king, found great favor among the Jews, his kinsmen. He was one who, quote, sought the good of his people and one who spoke for the welfare of his whole nation. Okay, there's the story. Now, what place does Esther have in God's big picture? How does it fit in with the, the meta-narrative, the big picture of God's plan of redemption? Clearly, Esther highlights the superintending providence of God, but it does so in an amazing way. Now, maybe you didn't pick up on it by my commentary because you weren't reading it, but God is never mentioned in the book of Esther. No mention of Yahweh, no mention of the Lord, no mention of God at all. 
And yet, by my using the language, it just so happens, I was trying to point you to the fact that God's fingerprints are all over that narrative, but God is not mentioned. And it seems to be intentional, that even when God is not spoken of and and credited, he is the one behind the scenes doing all of that work. And so, let's revisit some of those things that appear to be chance events and look through the lens of God's sovereignty and God's providence. Brothers and sisters, it didn't just so happen that Vashti was deposed as queen. God ordained it. It didn't just happen that Esther was one of the young women taken into the palace and that that she, of all the women, found favor with the king and became queen. That wasn't happenstance. God decreed it. It wasn't by chance that Mordecai was inclined to go daily in front of the court of the the harem to check up on, on, on Esther. God inclined him to do that so that in that context, it wasn't by chance that he happened to overhear the plot against the king and uncover it. And it didn't just happen by chance that the king couldn't sleep one night. You have sleepless nights? God may have a special purpose for your sleeplessness as he did with this king. It wasn't by chance that the king couldn't sleep and asked for his servants to read the chronicles to him and that in that reading he discovered that Mordecai had been the one to uncover the plot and save his life and that Mordecai had never been rewarded. It wasn't by chance that the fear of the Jews fell upon the people and they could not stand before them, but God providentially put their fear in their hearts. No, none of this was by chance. God made it happen according to his sovereign plan. And so how does Esther fit with the the big picture, the meta-narrative? I think we can say this. The same God who providentially protected his people on this particular occasion in history is the God who has protected and preserved his people throughout history in order to accomplish his purposes. And God had a purpose for the covenant people of Israel. It was so that one would be born of him who would be the ultimate seed of the woman. And when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. In a sense, the Jewish people were indestructible until God had accomplished his purpose through them, which was to bring forth from them the ultimate seed Jesus Christ. Haman was one of the many enemies of the Jews, one of the many enemies of God's people. He stands in the train of Cain, who tried to kill Abel, the righteous son, in the train of Pharaoh, who tried to exterminate the Jewish people. He stands in the train of every other enemy of the Jews who have tried to annihilate God's people, but try as they might, they failed and they will fail. Tom Schreiner says, even though God is never mentioned, Yahweh is king, and the Jews are his people. No plot to annihilate them will ever succeed, for Yahweh made a covenant with Israel and will fulfill his promises to them. The serpent and his offspring will not perish from the earth until the final victory is won, but they will not ultimately triumph. The kingdom will come in its fullness. The whole world will experience the blessing promised to Abraham. And that long-range blessing coming through Jesus Christ and the new covenant is to bless all the families of the earth. So that seems to be the contribution of of Esther to the canon and to the plan of God. 
uh, an indication of the clear providence of God in protecting his people in order to accomplish his sovereign purpose. Ephesians 1.11, he works all things according to the counsel or plan of his will. Well, let's make some applications, bring home some practical lessons. The first is this. The God who rules history rules over our lives in love and grace. The God who rules history also rules over your life as a Christian in love and in grace. You see, the Lord is on his throne. And the nations might rage, as Psalm 2 says, but the one who sits in the heavens laughs. He laughs. And what is true at the macro or big level is also true on the micro level. God is not only sovereign and ruling over all the affairs of history and his plan of salvation in a big way, but God is sovereign in the very details of your life as well. And the, the, the statement, the truth that, that rules over your life and mine as a believer is Romans 8, 28 and 29. For God works all things together for good to those who love him and are the called according to his purpose. And the next verse goes with it. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that we would be the firstborn among many brethren. Here's the overarching providential truth of your life and mine as a believer. God is working all things for good. The greatest good being your conformity to Christ and mine. That means God is using the good things in your life, the blessings, the joys, the people who bless you and encourage you to fill your heart with joy and thanksgiving and to draw you to God and to make you like Christ. But God is also using the painful things in your life, in your history, in your present life, the losses, the crosses, the people who oppose you and discourage you, God is using them to make you more. God is even using your own sin to humble you and to show you his, your need for his forgiveness and cleansing and help and to make you long more for the age to come. So what's true at the macro level, God's providential superintendence is true of your life and mine. God is superintending for your good every detail of your life. A second, I think, obvious lesson is the proud will be humbled and the humble exalted. Doesn't that jump from the pages of the book of Esther? What an amazing story of the turning of the tables. Here is Haman. He exalts himself in narcissistic pride. He is filled with himself. He's demanding that he be served, he be honored by others. He builds a, a gallows to rid himself of the enemy who will not feed his ego and his lust for power and honor. Get rid of that guy. I must be honored. I must be exalted. And he gets humbled in the dust, humiliated by having to bestow honor on the very man he hated for not honoring him. He who exalts himself will be humbled. But conversely, it illustrates the corollary. He who humbles himself will be exalted. And here we have Mordecai. He's presented as a man unselfishly, caringly, raising his young cousin Esther, deeply concerned for her well-being. A man concerned for his community, concerned to protect the life of his king. Though it's a pagan nation, he's the king under his authority. 
and it's not right to kill the king. And so he actually protects the king by exposing the plot against him. And he's a man deeply devoted to his God. He will not bow down to another man and give him worship since he'll have no other gods before Yahweh. A man seeking to be faithful, to simply love his God, love his neighbor. And this humble man is exalted to second in command, much like Joseph was in Egypt. Pretty clear to us that God humbles those who exalt themselves and exalts those who humble themselves. Now I ask you, as I ask myself, what formula would you like to characterize your life? Do you want to be one who exalts yourself? You're guaranteed to be humble. Or do we want to cry to God regularly, Lord, humble me, make me humble, that you would exalt yourself? I've told you it's one of the four H's I pray for every day, humility. Sometimes I pray, Lord, if I fail to humble myself, humiliate me. So important is humility. God resists the proud, gives grace to the humble. Are you bold enough to pray, Lord, if I fail to humble myself, will you do the job and humiliate me if necessary? Because if we need nothing else, we need humility. Jesus was meek and lowly in heart. Let's be like Mordecai and not like Haman. Another application is it's a dangerous thing to oppose or persecute the people of God. Haman is described, that's why I called your attention to it, as the enemy of the Jews. Now, the Jews were the covenant people of God, and at this stage in their history, they don't seem to be in a season of, sometimes God raised up people against the Jews, but at this stage, at this place, they don't seem to be in rebellion, they don't seem immersed in idolatry. God is for them, God is supporting them, God is putting the fear of pagan people, of the Jews in their hearts, God is favoring them, and yet Haman was an enemy of the covenant people of God. That's a dangerous thing. Do you remember Saul's experience when he testifies in Acts 9, when Jesus Christ appears to him and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus took it personally. You speak a word against my people. You raise a hand against my people. Jesus is saying, I take it personally. You're doing it to me. They're my people. They're my beloved people. They're my blood-bought people. You do it to them, and you do it to me. And so the dangerous thing to oppose or persecute the people of God, Jesus even said, better that a millstone be hung around your neck than you cause one of these little ones who believes in me to stumble. And so to anyone who is an unbeliever listening to my voice, it's a warning to you. If you're outside of Jesus Christ, you're already under the wrath of God. But if you dare to discourage and oppose the people of God, your guilt is compounded. That means husbands or wives who would discourage their believing spouse from seeking the Lord are guilty. Parents who discourage their children from seeking the Lord are guilty. Children who discourage their believing parents by their unbelief are guilty to oppose or persecute a child of God in whatever way it is done is an offense and an affront to Jesus who takes it personally against himself. May none of us be found in the place of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, the enemy of the people of God, in our context, the enemy of the Christian. Not a good thing.
we hear a lot of talk about being on the right side of history, don't we? Got to be on the right side of history. And what people mean is you need to go with the flow of the changing morality and ethics of human society. To be on the right side of history, you need to accept homosexuality and transgenderism and diversity, equity, and inclusion and, and Marxist wokeism. If you're going to be on the right side of history, what we call people, if you're going to be on the right side of history, you better be on the right side of the God of history. And the only way you get right with that God is through Jesus Christ and faith in him. And then fourthly and kind of finally, Esther provides us with godly examples. Mordecai, a good and godly example. A God-fearing, neighbor-loving child of God. And the whole law is reduced to love God and love your neighbor, right? And Mordecai displays that. He's an example to parents because he directed his adopted daughter, Esther Hadassah, to do the right thing and to do the good thing. He's a good example to parents. He's an example of one who feared God more than he feared man. He would not bow to Haman and worship him because he had a God in heaven who alone was worthy of that worship. And at the risk of his life, he refused to honor man over God. He's an example of a God-fearing man over a man-fearing man. He's a man who sought the good of his community in seeking to preserve the life of his king. So Mordecai is a good example of godliness. Esther is a good example of godliness. She is an example of a woman who humbly submitted to God-ordained authority. That's why I read you that statement. She obeyed Mordecai when she was under his care. And when Mordecai said, Esther, you got to go to the king and plead for our people, even at the risk of your life. Because he commanded it, she did it. An example, not only to women, but to all of us, of submission to God-ordained authority. She's a woman who loved her people, the Jewish people, and therefore she loved the God of her people because they were God's people, God's covenant people. She loved God, and she loved his people. And she was willing to lose her own life for their cause. If I perish, I perish. A woman of great godly courage. And something else about Esther in which she is a good example. She's a good of, example of wisdom, of not being ruled by her emotions and impulse, but a woman of calm prudence. She hears, our people are threatened. They're going to be exterminated. There's going to be genocide. Esther, you need to go to the king. She didn't just rush into the king's presence and plead. She calculated. She didn't just respond emotionally and impulsively. She said, she thought it through. She prayed and fasted. Let's have a banquet. And let's have another banquet. And at that time, I'll make known to you my heritage. And she wisely, prudently planned, didn't act on emotion or impulse. And obviously, God used it for good. So Esther's one of the good ones. Sarah, Ruth, Naomi, Mary, Elizabeth, not surprising. A lot of baby girls are named Esther. We knew one in Philadelphia who was named Hadassah. You know any Hadassahs? Okay. That's a little bit truer to the Hadassah. Of course, we have a Hadassah. 
See, that's even more true to the Bible because that's her Jewish name rather than the pagan. Sorry, Diana, you got a pagan name, but she'll have a good one in heaven. Pagan goddess, she, that's okay. You can still be a believer. One final word, one final word to unbelievers. You know, like I contrasted with Nehemiah, you got Nehemiah and Sanballat. Nehemiah loved God, feared God, served God. Sanballat was an enemy of the people of God. You only have two streams of humanity. Likewise here, you got Haman and Mordecai. As you hear the story, even though I represent it in a cursory way, how does Haman come across to you? You say, yeah, he, he's the man. Haman, he's the guy I want to be like. Or when you hear about Mordecai, you say, no, I, I like that role model better. We see if, if you're an unbeliever, you're on the spectrum with Haman. We sometimes talk about the autism spectrum. If you're an unbeliever, you're on Haman's spectrum. Haman was all about himself, an extreme narcissist, self-promoting, self-serving, self-exalting. But you know what? All of us, before we were saved by Christ, and you now, if you're an unbeliever, are living for yourself. How do I know that? Because of the words of the Apostle Paul. The love of Christ controls us, having concluded this. One died for all, therefore all died. He died for all that they who live should, get this, no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Every one of us lived for ourselves before we were converted. You're either living for yourself or you're living for the God who made you. So you may, an unbeliever, you may not see yourself as narcissistic as Haman, but you're on the spectrum because you're still living for yourself. If you're going to be forgiven, if you're going to be saved, if you're going to have eternal life, that needs to change. You need to humble yourself and God will exalt you. How do you do that? You say to God and you feel it deeply, I'm a sinner, I'm unworthy of eternal life, I deserve hell, I deserve judgment, I've lived for myself and not for you, the God who made me. I want to turn from that, I want to repent of that, and I want to turn to the only provision you've made for self-centered sinners, and that's Jesus. And I want to put my trust in him for forgiveness, and he will forgive you and he will change you so that you too will no longer live for yourself, basically, but for him who died and rose again on your behalf. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this little book of Esther, which has such powerful